learning is is a good thing you know i mean like i, I would say i almost had to unlearn a lot of things uh, to to get to this point like and i'll i'll give an example like i, I was in grad school right and when you, when you are doing your phd like what the only thing that matters is like how innovative is the thing you are working on right i mean it, it, it did not have any market relevance but like whatever you are publishing has to be unique and nobody else has done this before right that is what gets value welcome to the in factor conversations about how great entrepreneurs started stumbled and succeeded i'm rebecca white and today's guest is sumideb mitra Sumideb is the founder and CEO of a successful Series A startup, Rudderstack, which was founded in June 2019 and has raised 26 million in funding so far. Before starting Rudderstack, he was also a founder of a B2B ad tech platform called Mariana IQ, which got acquired by 8x8. Sumideb has a PhD in computer science from the University of Illinois. and resides in the bay area now. In this podcast, we dive into the opportunities and issues of big data today, how entrepreneurs and businesses are using information, the challenges of building a venture-backed company, and lessons learned as a serial entrepreneur. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sumya Dev, thank you for joining me today on Impactor. Thanks for inviting me. I'm truly excited and humbled to be here. Yes, well, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing your story. Um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about I know right now uh your the business you're you've started and you're working with is Rudderstack. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we want to hear about Rudderstack and what Rudderstack is and and um, you know, how you provide value for customers, but I'd also love to hear how you got to this point um with this company. So, could you tell us a little of your background and tell us a little bit about about Rudderstack. Yeah, I would love to do that. So, I I can maybe start with Rudderstack and go back uh, into my background. So like uh, so I'll I started Rudderstack in 2019, so I've been doing it for the last two and a half years. I'll come and talk about Rudderstack, but before that I spent a year in this company called 8x8 and uh, most probably would, people would not have heard of them, but like it's a public company in the telecom space so they they build like phone systems and like and, and teleconferencing systems and and so on and i my charter there was to like work on machine learning and data science and and so on but what i mostly ended up doing was to work on a bunch of customer data problems right so bring all the customer data that we have about our customers into one place and then do analytics and do machine learning and like things like can we predict which customers are going to churn or which customers are going to buy new products can we predict that and then so that like the sales and marketing can be more focused right so those are the kind of problems i was working on and the challenges i faced in putting together that architecture uh, is what prompted me to start rudderstack now uh, i'll talk about rudderstack later but so before that i i was the co-founder and cto of this company called mariana iq uh, i founded that with two other uh, uh, folks they were like uh, like x mckenzy uh, they have run marketing mm-hmm. in in large organizations and i was the technical guy and what we were trying to do was to build the next generation marketing automation system so like instead of like marketers having to create campaigns and so on like automate everything with machine learning 
And we sold that product to a bunch of large enterprises like Microsofts and Junipers of the world. But one thing I learned, uh, we learned in the process that most marketing teams do not have good data. And so if you do not have good data, then you cannot do machine learning and so on. And that's the problem we started to fix at 8 by 8 Like, let's first collect the data, then we'll do ML. And But then we figured out that even collecting the data was hard. And that's what we are trying to do with Rudderstack. So my, my journey was like, with Rudderstack was almost like reverse, right? We tried to do ML, realized data was hard, then and, and then like solving that with Rudderstack. But hopefully we'll solve the entire problem, starting with collecting the data to like solving those ML problems on, on customer data. And before that, I, I have a PhD in data. So I have mostly worked in data all my life. In fact, like during my PhD, we worked on these large rocket simulations. So we are doing like big data before any of this was cool. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I have worked <laughs> in data all my life, but data applied to marketing in the last couple of years. So, so that's really interesting. You're in a, a fascinating space, a very timely space. And uh, you said your, your background was in data. What what fascinated you about taking that pathway? And and I guess even more, more so, you know, a lot of our audience, um, you know, that we have a student audience and, and a lot of entrepreneurs out there. If you want to know more about machine learning and AI and data, you know, how do you educate yourself? There's so much out there to learn and so much to know. I mean, what, you know, how did, where did your passion come from, you think? And, and how would you recommend somebody who has an interest in that, um, you know, getting prepared for that world? Yeah, I think like, again, I, I, I mean, my opinions are like, are shaped by what I have seen in the world, right? I mean, I think machine learning uh, is kind of overhyped a bit like in, in, in this market, right? I think, um, but like the core data problems are like not always ML problems, right? I mean, I think even if you look at like large companies, the majority of the time is spent on collecting data, cleaning the data up and, and so on. So there's a lot of like data engineering foundation that you anyone has to build before you can do ML. And when it comes to machine learning, there are like traditional approaches. Like when I was in grad school and when we were doing ML, like there are like, uh, like, algorithms like uh, like like svms and like and logistic regressions and, and and all that stuff like random forest which were like built over the last like 30 40 years and then in 2000 like late 2010 and then this decade we saw like a massive uh, explosion of deep networks and neural networks and, and so on but like in practical problems the old techniques are good enough because in most companies there is like the basic problem is not having enough data so not having data not having clean data collecting data is a pain and, and so on so what i'm trying to say is like if if somebody is interested to like build a career or or or, or even like start a company i think like it is better to focus on core fundamental data problems right i mean how, how do you like uh like collect data how do you clean data and then and it's not like any like so you, you probably have to do like a computer science course or, or like there are no data focused courses also. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I suggest that you do that. And then like you can take a couple of courses on ML and then so on. But I think like I, I, like starting with ML without a fundamental training on data is, is actually uh, like would be harder and may not set any someone for success uh, for, for the long term. Is, is what I yeah. So, so you bring up this issue and I've seen it as well. You know, I'm on a number of company boards and some of them even pretty mature companies, product-based companies. And there, um, there's not, a there's not necessarily a, a lack of 
data, but a lack of usable data, maybe. Yeah. And and um, so, talk to me a little bit more about RudderStack and you know what the problem that you're trying to solve and and who's your customer? I mean, who would buy your product? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, to, to answer that, maybe I'll tell you a, like a like a current landscape of how things are done today and then what we are trying to change, right? So like we, we focus on customer data. And, and and what I mean by that is like, if you are like a consumer company, let's start there. I mean, it's relevant for B2B companies as well, but let's say you are a B2C company. Like let's say you are Crate and Barrel or uh, like your Priceline or one of those companies. And you want to uh, understand your customer's behavior and what your customers are doing on the website, on the app and, and so on. And why would you want to do that? Like, number one, you want to analyze like what they are doing and like make the product experience better. So if you know that like a lot of people are dropping up from the sign up fun page, you know, something needs to be fixed and, and so on. Right? So product analytics is a big part of uh, like why you need to collect data. Mm -hmm. Then you need to do marketing. Like, so based on your behavior in the app, let's say you search for some products and uh, search for a hotel and you dropped off without buying, then maybe they should send you a coupon saying that, okay, like this hope, there's 20% off in hotels in LA, if you're looking for hotels in LA, whatever, right? So you want to do marketing based on what you did in the app, right? So there is a marketing use case for collecting data. Then there are more advanced ML use cases, right? I mean, let's say you are a subscription business and you collect all the customer data. And based on that, you want to like, predict which are the customers who are likely to churn. They are very active and they are no longer active. So then maybe you want to give them a coupon and, and something, right? So that's kind of the other reason you want to like collect customer data. So there are a whole lot of reasons for collecting customer data. And the, the, uh, the, the traditional way people have been solving this is buying vertically integrated SaaS solution. So you would buy something like Amplitude or like some mix panel or some like product analytics tool and sell on, send on the customer data to that and, and then you use for analytics. Similarly, you send everything to a marketing system for doing this, right? So you send this customer data to like five different systems for five different use cases. Right? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the way traditionally things are done. The biggest problem with that is now you create these data silos, right? I mean, like each one has only limited view of the data and, and, and so on. Now, and then you cannot like these systems are not very configurable. You can only do what comes out of the box. Right? If you have to customize the ML model for your use case, you cannot do that and so on. So that's kind of one. That's the traditional way. In the last, I would say like five to ten years, what has happened is you have seen the explosion of data warehouses. Right? You have seen Snowflake and the the big queries mm -hmm. and the direction for the world really exploding. So what that has enabled is collection of customer data, like any data, not just customer data. Now it has become much easier to collect data, process that, and, 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 and analyze that and so on. Right? So that's kind of one macro trend that has happened. Because of that, we have seen this like trend from like this traditional way of like where marketing team collects customer data and product team collects customer data and every other support team collects customer data in their own silos. Instead of that, you collect everything into a data warehouse, a central place, and then you do all these interesting things on top of that data, whether analytics, whether ML, and so on. The, the downstream tools are still relevant. You still need a marketing tools to send an email. You still need like an analytics tool to visualize and create funnels. You need those tools, but your source of truth, like the, the data is in your data warehouse, right? So that's the trend where like multiple silos to single source of truth, which then powers all these applications, right? So that's the world we are getting into. And 
that's what we are betting on. Right? I mean, we are a platform which enables, firstly, the data collection into the warehouse. Like we can collect the data into the warehouse, we can activate the data out of the warehouse. But more importantly, we will also build tools which will make it easy for you to like analyze the data in the warehouse. Right? I mean, how, how do you like create views and like and, and identity switching? There are a whole lot of things we can do on top of the warehouse, uh, but specifically focused to customer data. So. So it, I don't know it's a very long way to answer your simple no, question. No, 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 no. That's a that's great because you know it's what you're talking about really is 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 kind of being the system that can bring it all together so that we can get more value from all of this information that's coming in and we can actually uh, we can turn the data actually into information, usable information. And and does it also mean uh, with Rudderstack that we're able to share that throughout the organization in a more meaningful way? Yeah. So we haven't built like a sharing means a lot of things, right? I mean, like one is like, like you today we enable data collection into a warehouse, right? Uh, like you, you pull all the data into the warehouse. Now, like you can share the raw data. Like, I mean, I, I, unless I create a table in the warehouse, like a mm -hmm. table which you can query with SQL. And then like you can share the table with like everyone else in the company, right? So like that is one level of sharing and that is enabled by the warehouse itself. Like we don't have to do much. I mean, it's in Snowflake, you can give people access to the data, right? The next level of sharing is like you don't want to share the raw data, but you connect like some kind of a visualization layer. Like let's say you connect like Tableau or Looker or you create some dashboards and then you share those dashboards with the rest of the organization because like nobody wants the raw data anyway. They want to look at some KPI. Right. So, so that is like the next level of sharing. So the so to answer your question, the sharing is enabled by these applications, either the warehouse or the or, or the, the the visualization layers, not so much by the data stack. We are kind of the plumbing layer. To I gotcha. move the data in and out, but also like the processing layer to process the data in the warehouse, if, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, that makes a lot of sense. So how long has Rudderstack been around? And tell me a little bit about the organization. You're the CEO. Yeah. Um, are, are you also the founder of yeah. Rudderstack? Yeah. So, so, so tell me a little bit about how Rudderstack as a company came to be and, and a little bit about the company. So we are a two and a half year old company. So we just started in 2019. Uh, and again, like it, it came... Uh, from like my experience and my investors experience uh, on, on like in, 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 in this broader space. And then like mm -hmm. we, we started in 2019, we uh, raised a small amount of money, built the product. We are also an open source product because we are selling primarily to developers. And when you're selling to developers, open source does matter. Like sometimes like developers do care about open source. So, so yeah, I mean like, like that's what, and then like initially we, we kind of grew from there. Uh, when you're selling to developers, Hacker News, I don't know if you follow Hacker News, but it's like one of the popular sites for developers. So we we, we got on Hacker News a couple of times and that got us exposure and mindshare and so on. And then, mm -hmm. and then we have been growing since then. Today, we are almost a team of like 80 people. And uh, we have like a team in India, a team in Greece, uh, a team in US, uh, and we are a very distributed org. Right? I mean, pretty much we have some offices, but like pretty much everyone else, everyone, uh, including me, is working out of a home or a we work. Yeah. So, so how, um, I guess I, I, several questions come up out of that, but, I, um, you know, one quick question, I think, um, how has the pandemic affected what you're doing? So you, you started in 2019 and so, um, you've got a virtual team, uh, yeah. and you might've had a virtual team anyway, in a, uh, you know, at least for a big part of your team, but, um, how has the pandemic affected maybe the need for your product or the interest in your product? Yeah, I think, I mean, like, I, I I feel bad to say this because, like, I mean, I know pandemic has affected a lot of people in very bad ways, but, but like, from 
a pure business perspective, I mean, it has been a great boost, right? I mean, because like with, with the pandemic, every business is realizing the value of like getting online, right? I mean, like you are no longer, you cannot afford to have stores only, right? You have to be online. I mean, there I was looking at this chart, which showed that US, US e-commerce adoption was like put jumped ahead by almost 10 years, like, and, and so on. Right, so, I mean, right. So, and this macro trend helps anyone which is like working with the broader space of customer data, not just us, right? I mean, like, part of like getting online is you want to collect all the data, you want to personalize the experience because like, everything is now online. So I think like that way is definitely helped. The other way is like, I mean, the the the, the stock market is at an all time high, right? So whenever that that is there, uh, like, I mean, it, it does trickle down to like early stage funds and like the, it's mm-hmm. easier to raise money and so on. So I think again, I, I know it's it's like it's kind of a weird thing to say and given I mean I'm, a lot of people in my family have been affected too but like business wise I mean I'm not complaining right they, I mean and business wise there have been clear winners that have come out of the pandemic and then there's been losers and it, it's been painful for a lot of people but I I was I was guessing that because of you know what you just said I mean I think I I heard that in 12 months you know we advanced like 12 years so yeah. you know and, and I know that happened here in the academic academic world, um, you know, my, where, you know, as an educator, uh, we began to understand how we could use technology in new ways. And I think a lot of companies did. And, and as a lot of things went virtual, the need to collect data from customers virtually um, started to grow exponentially too, I'm sure. I mean, we, you know, and to understand and and process that data. So um, your company, uh, you said you had about 80 employees. Did I understand that? So you're CEO of uh, of a, you know, a growing company. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about, um, you're definitely coming from a technology background. How does, how does that work to become CEO? And, and, you know, what are some of the lessons you've learned? Who are some of your, role models um, as CEOs. Yeah, I mean, like, learning is is a good thing. I mean, like, I I would say I almost had to unlearn a lot of things uh, to to get to this point. Like, and I'll I'll give an example, like, I I was in grad school, right? And when when you're doing your PhD, like, what, the only thing that matters is like, how innovative is the thing you're working on, right? I mean, it, it, it did not have any market relevance, but like whatever you're publishing has to be unique and nobody else has done this before, right? That is what gets valued. And that's how you get published, right? If, if someone has even remotely done anything like that, you will not get a paper. Right. Right? That is all about academia. Like how do you find a very unique niche, right? Mm-hmm. And and then I, I, I left uh, after my PhD, uh, like I, I went to this company, like worked for three years and then I started a company and then I, I, I was kind of following the same trend, right? I come up. I came up with a very unique idea. I thought it was brilliant. Like nobody has thought of it, and I tried to build a company around it, and nobody cared. Right? I mean, like it was very hard to like convince people to like do things, right? And then like I did another company where again like we are trying to do very similar thing. We are trying to do machine learning to like again try to solve the problem, but try to do it in a very unique way. Now, I think like one thing I've learned again through all these painful experiences is like like uniqueness really doesn't matter in like in in uh, in when you're starting a company, right? I mean. You you can literally copy one company and then like still make it huge by better execution, better like product, uh, better like customer support. Pick any dimension. You can do better than that, and then you can out execute the leader in the com- uh, in the space, right? And one thing again, so so that's kind of one thing. I mean, like finally, only thing that matters is not uniqueness, but the market opportunity. Right? Mm-hmm. Is the market there, and can you execute 
to capture that market, right? That's the only thing that matters, right? So, I mean, like, so again, like, I mean, it was kind of obvious, right? If you're building a business, you have to be like, uh, like, yeah, like you have to have a market, but it's surprisingly not clear to me, right? I mean, you see, like, I mean, even now I see, like, I learned this hard way after like multiple startups, which did not go well, but I still see startups, right? There are big problems, which like pick any existing company. Microsoft has a product. It is building like $5 billion of revenue. It is a shitty product. Nobody wants, but nobody is trying to build that. Versus like people are trying to build like cool AI ML next generation, some problem, which like nobody cares about. The market is not there. Right? So I think that's, that's one thing again, I guess like, you have to learn the hard way. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think timing is underestimated a lot of times in is. the success of. I um, it, when I'm teaching my classes, I talk about uh, the the origin of the word opportunity, and it comes from the Latin phrase ob portu, which was which referred to um, it's in Latin. It means toward port, so it referred to the times back in the days before ports were dredged when the captain and crew was waiting and watching to see when the tide would was rise and the wind was right to go to port. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that analogy, I think yeah. it's perfect uh, for what you're talking about. You know, it is about opportunity. It is about creating value, obviously, for customers. But if they don't, if that's not at the top of their needs yeah. list, yeah. then um, that opportunity isn't there. So, you know, and, and just like the captain and crew, if you try to go to shore and the tide hasn't risen enough for you to get there, uh, you're going to run aground. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. those are, those are great lessons. And, uh, and I, I love hearing you talk about that. Yeah, this is, I didn't know about that, but yeah, this is, this is a good thing to know and like share. Maybe I'll share this in my next podcast. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, you and I have, uh, we know someone in common, my graduate student, Indraja, I call her Ivy, uh -huh. and uh, you worked with her some, and she's, um, she's Indian and here living in the United States. And um, you know, one of the questions that she had, and, and uh, I know a lot of our students, we have a lot of international students, is um, how hard has it been to be an immigrant, uh, in, you know, in another country starting a business? And, and what, what kinds of things would you, um, what have you learned from that experience? Yeah, I mean, like, to be honest, like, I mean, I, I have lived in multiple places. Like, I, I spent a lot of time in Germany during my undergrad, during my PhD. Uh, and then I've traveled quite a bit in Europe and, and then so on. So I think uh, one thing I must say is like, I mean, like I, I never felt out of place in, 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 in the US, right? I mean, the language is probably a big part of it, but culturally also, right? I think like that the society is so open to immigrants. And again, I, 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 I never lived in like rural America, so I, I cannot talk about that. But like from the day I landed in like, my in UIUC, I mean, I, I flew into uh, Illinois and I met my advisor and again, stayed there for four years and moved to the Bay Area. So I I don't think I ever had any problem uh, like being an immigrant. Uh, I mean, like initially, yes. I mean, like my I, I had an accent, so I had to maybe uh, like ordering things in a subway was slightly harder <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> and getting what I wanted. But then like, you spent like six months and you get over it and, and, and so on. So. I mean, like, I, I don't think like, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, like, it would be unfair to say and to, to the society in, in US. I mean, I'm grateful to that, like, how, how, how welcoming uh, everyone has been uh, to like, 
Yeah, you know, as an educator who has students in my class from all over the world, that's one of the things I probably enjoy the most because I think having different perspectives and coming from different backgrounds can really enhance the creative output of of the group. And so I think it's, um, you know, I think, like you mentioned, there are oftentimes small things um, in translation and communication that you have to overcome. But but I think it, it adds value for all of us to come together um, from different backgrounds. So um, I, I'm really curious uh, about, um, you know, this, the, your, you, is your entire team remote now and, um, or a big part of it is remote? And could you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what it's like to manage a remote team? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs that might be listening to this may be facing this for the first time. And I know in technology, it's been probably more common to have remote workers for longer, but, you know, we're, we're seeing it now in virtually every workplace. And um, are there, do you think there are any unique, um, you know, unique tips that you might, or, or things that make it different that you might uh, be able to share about managing remote workforces? So, yeah, again, I'll caveat whatever I say with the, the, the statement that I have not managed huge teams, right, in my past. So I cannot compare, like, in, uh, in person versus remote that's one thing and the other thing is like like uh, managing engineers is like even when we are in person like we, uh, like uh, i had people in my team were working remotely and, and so on like engineering was like always like very like remote friendly right? because like you, you generally are working in your own silo right so so with those two caveats and that's what we have done at rather stack also right we have an international team and they, they go to office like we have offices in a couple of places but like otherwise a lot of them are also working remotely so we i don't think we ever had any problems managing the engineering teams i although i'm the ceo I, i'm not directly managing the, the sales team and the, the, the support teams and so on so like somebody else is doing that so i mean maybe they are the right i mean i i should ask them like if they're facing any challenges but i, I don't think so and also, I think if you are like from day one remote, I think that that does impact things also. Right? I mean, we are pretty much like we are born during the pandemic, right? Within like I don't know five months, the pandemic hit, right? So I think given that, like we are from day zero a remote first company, and like culturally, so that that kind of we kind of put in place processes and culture and and so on to to, to like make it suitable for that world. That makes mm-hmm. sense. So you have to do it at least kind of thoughtfully and in terms of putting the processes and things in place to, to, I don't even say that. I mean, we are kind of forced into that. Right. So, I mean, like, okay. like say if you are remote and then you are having a zoom call and, and, and like your, all your architecture decisions are being done on a zoom call, then you have to write a technical spec. You cannot whiteboard. Right. So, so the, you're forced to get into more of a written culture and, and uh, like track things properly and, and so on. So like mm-hmm. and, uh, discuss more things on Slack. So we are al- almost like forced into this, uh, whatever, whatever we have today. And, mm-hmm. and, and then like yeah. communication becomes when you're interviewing people, you know, that communication is very important. Like communication, like, I mean, you, you want people who are like good to talk to and, and so on. So again, like this, you're forced into that literally. So the principles are the same really in a lot of ways, commu- good communication and, 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 and um, keep, keeping track of meetings and information and organizing. And so a lot of it stays the same. You know, let's talk just a little bit. I'm, I'm very curious about you're in the data space and customer data space. 
And I'm, I'm wondering what you see in the future for that space and kind of how Rudderstack um, plans to fit into that. Like, what, what, what are your thoughts about the future? Yeah, I think like the world is getting into this, like uh, in the data warehouse first thing I was talking about, right? So in, initially, like if, if you like, like rewind back, right? I mean, in the, like the late nineties, it was all about like IT managed, right? IT was buying Oracle and like they were buying like SAP and deploying all these solutions. And then like they're building solutions for marketing and product. So we are in that world and they're like very costly IT budgets, right? So, so that was one world. Then came the whole SaaS world, right? I mean, like Salesforce said, like that is doesn't make sense. Like, like Salesforce started knows the cloud software business. And then they're like, like SaaS products for everything. Like product creates a SaaS and like marketing has a SaaS solution and everyone else, right? So we have kind of like, I believe that we have almost like run that course, right? In the sense that we are kind of now seeing challenges with that approach because now, now we are creating so many different data silos, right? Everyone, every team has their own version of customer data and they're doing some processing on top of that data that is not visible anywhere, right? So, and so that's kind of one trend that we have seen. And the other thing that has happened is like deploying this IT infrastructure, you have to buy like this huge Oracle racks to get started. Now, starting a snowflake warehouse on the cloud is like you like swipe a credit card and $50, you have a warehouse, right? Where you can dump like infinite amount of data. So like, so it, it's kind of like, I think going back to that original world, it will go back where your data is at least centralized. And then you still have applications which are like that. The, the UI layer or the activation layer which is sending out emails, which would be on the cloud. But like people would realize that it, it is there is a certain value to storing and owning that cost, core customer data, like because like and not creating data silos. On top of that, like all the privacy regulations, GDPR are like are, are kind of and cookies going away and all these macro trends mm -hmm. also are forcing to that uh, like world where you don't want to like just have your customer data spread all over the place. Right? So. So I think, so that's the world we are betting on. Right? I mean, that's where the world will be in like five years, 10 years. And we want to be the plumbing layer or the platform on top of which this thing gets built, right? And so on. So that's kind of like the high level. Mm -hmm. of, of this. So um, as you look towards that, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're, you see for your company coming up in the next, say, three years? To, yeah, to... I think, like I, I say, as, as a VC funded business, right? I mean, like your like growth is extremely important. I mean, you may have a very good vision and so on, but like what matters is like, am I hitting my revenue metrics this year and the next year and the year after and so on. So like it's while it's the vision is important to get the team excited and like to, to go to a destination, destination is important, but the path is also equally important and how you execute, right? So I think mm -hmm. you have to be very heads down and like, like, keep hitting those revenue numbers because like if you keep doing that then you'll get get funded then you can keep growing the team and you can execute that on that vision so i think like often like so like it's kind of like balancing that like short-term execution with like the longer term vision and i think like a lot of the challenges are on the short-term execution right i mean like i mean today i'm not worried about my vision today i'm worried about one of my customers some product is not working right so that's what i'm that's the day in day out fight you have to like yeah that's do that, that yeah, that's really good advice. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you brought up the, the you know, being a venture funded company and I just, I have to go down that path because, uh, you know, there, a lot of our listeners are interested in that. And I think you make a really good point 
um, you know, it's, there's milestones along the way and you just have to keep ticking those off and keep heading down that path. And a lot of times that means sales, right? That means getting, getting the customer sales. Could, could you talk just a little bit about what you've learned about, about being a venture, you know, from being a venture funded company, you know, for some of the listeners who might have an, a concept who need to go out and raise money, um, you know, what, any advice for, for raising money and what you've learned from going through that process? Yeah, I think like, I mean, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think firstly, I would say is like raising money is not the only way to build a business. Right? I mean, that, that's like, that's one thing. Like, I mean, a lot of like, even I was like that. I thought like uh, raising money was like an uh, outcome. Like you'd be excited about I raised money, right? But like, it is not really an outcome. That right? outcome is to build a business later. Right? And, and like there's multiple paths to building great businesses. Raising money is only this VC path only works in a very narrow focus of tech businesses and so on. Like there's so many other great businesses being built without raising money. So, so that's I think like I think we should like underplay raising money as like an outcome, like which a lot of founders get excited about. So that's one thing. Now beyond that, I think like what do VCs look for, right? I mean, the the whole VC model is built on this hypothesis that. Uh, like one in hundred will succeed, and that one in hundred will pay for all the ninety-nine failures, right? So that's that's the whole business model. They're not trying to make like twenty percent margins on all their investments, right? So, so, so it's very important for them for you to convince your VC at whatever stage, the early stage, late stage, is there is a one in hundred chance that this is like a ten billion dollar business or like a hundred billion dollar business, right? So, like, I mean. You need to believe that, and like unless you believe that, you cannot convey it to your VC also, right? So I think that huge potential outcome is important, and a lot, lot of businesses are not that. I mean, there are a lot of markets where you, you don't have a ten billion dollar market, right? So I think that's that's why I think like, but you may still be passionate about it. Like I mean, you, I, I want to do something. So I think like that's the lens I think everyone should wear. Like and it's kind of like, do you want to do that? And the third thing is like, and it's like a, like. Having money solves a lot of problems. We can attract great talent and can like really like scale the business. So there are a lot of good things about like having money and then scaling. But then there are a lot of pressure also, right? I mean, like like you have to grow like three x, three x, three x, two x, two x, right? I mean, in 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 like five years, you are expected to grow from zero million in revenue to 40, 50 million in revenue, right? And, and like probably more, and which is hard, right? And so so like. And I say like there have been great businesses have been built without VC money and great businesses have been built with VC money. So there is no right answer. But like right. in, in either case, like you just have to make sure that your business goals align with what VCs look for and not treat VC money as just an outcome. I mean, it's just one of the yeah. ingredients you need. That's I think that's fantastic advice. I I have seen too many companies who have done exactly that. And, you know, the, the, the goal was to raise money and, you know, that was the outcome and that's what they talk about. That's the PR, but, you know, at the end of the day, that doesn't get you where you need to get to build a successful company. I mean, that, like you said, in a small percentage of companies, that's necessary to get where you need to get, but it's not the only way. So really, really great advice. I love that. You know, I could uh, I could talk longer, but I know you've got a lot to do running a, running a startup that's been around for a couple of years and it has is uh, venture backed and ha- you have a lot of work to do. But but it's been such a pleasure to have you. I always like to 
to ask my guests to share uh, one piece of advice that they would leave with our listeners about this whole process of the entrepreneurial journey. So before we go, um, Sumaya Deb, what, what would be your one piece of advice for our listeners? Yeah, I think like, I always like make this quote, like there's a quote from Andreessen and it's not my quote. So I think uh, it's, it, it goes like this, right? So like when uh, a, a good team, uh, bad market, market wins, a bad team, good market, market wins, and a good team, good market, uh, magic happens, right? So that is like, <laughs> I think like summary of like all, all uh, companies, right? So it's, it's finally market which determines everything and, and you need to have a good team and so on. But I think, like, and by, by market, I guess they also mean the, the timing and the things that we talked about. Right, right. That we've talked about. Great advice. Great advice. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we go, where can our listeners find out more about you and Rudderstack and, and maybe connect with you and, and or your company? Yeah, so I mean, like Rudderstack.com is our website uh, and uh, R-U-D-D-E-R-S-T-A-C-K.com is pretty easy. And my name is Somya Dev. And because of my unique name, I have like first name everywhere. So first name at Gmail, first name at Rudderstack and first name at LinkedIn. So yeah, I mean, feel free to, if you, have, if you know my first name, you, you can pretty much like first name at whatever, <laughs> you'll find we, me. We can find you, right. Well, thank you, Somalia Deb. And I hope you have a wonderful uh, evening. And I really appreciate you spending time with me today. I really appreciate you inviting me to the podcast. I, I, I had a lot of fun and thanks for doing this. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.